Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We are looking at the next section um, based upon it. Each line starts with the letter Zion, and we will be looking at verses 49 through 56 as we consider the psalmist cry to God through Psalm 119. So please take up your Bibles now if you have them. Open them to Psalm 119 and follow along as I read, beginning in verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves or restores my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge or in the house of my wanderings. In the night, I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your holy law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Let us pray. To the great God who strengthens us through the power of the gospel, we ask that you would show us the path to obedience, an obedience that is known and seen by all and an obedience that brings you and you alone glory. Teach us to be wise toward what is good and innocent according to what is evil. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The overarching theme of our passage today is remembrance. You'll notice at the beginning of verse 49, the beginning of verse 52, and also in verse 55, you see either a call upon God to remember or a declaration that the psalmist himself will remember something. And so the, the theme is remembrance in this psalm. And, and the cry is to God that this Bible-soaked prayer gives us comfort in God's promises, gives us hope in waiting on God's action, and gives us joy in God's future glory. But before we dig into that particular theme, I want us to take a look at a word that has happened, has occurred several times throughout Psalm 119, but is easy for us to overlook. The psalmist refers to himself multiple times throughout Psalm 119 as God's servant, and he does so in verse 49 as he calls upon God to remember his word to God's servant. If you've grown up in the church, if you've heard good, faithful preaching, you're, you're familiar with this idea of the, the people of God being not only the children of God, but also the servants of God. And sometimes as we read servant, we have a tendency just to kind of blow right on past it, to think we understand it, and to, to, to just ignore it as we're looking for other things. But this, this word servant does have in in, in mind the sense of the fact that God has created us because he has created us. He has authority and, dare I say, ownership over humanity, and he calls them to live a certain way, to follow him faithfully, to be holy as he is holy. And there is that sense of it, but it also has two other senses that oftentimes we overlook. First, uh, the king's advisors were considered servants to the king. We recently had a monarch change in England, and while that affects us, not at all here in America. We fought a, a war several couple hundred years ago to make sure that wasn't an effect on us here. But 
there's a great example that we have there because the new king and the, the queen that preceded him has a personal secretary. And this man or woman is the gatekeeper of the king's schedule. And as the relationship de develops between the personal secretary and the king, the, the personal secretary becomes a confidant to the king and ends up with a tremendous amount of power as they have not only control over the king's schedule, but also have the king's ear and can advise and can, can steer the king as he seeks to lead the nation of England, the, the Britain, the United Kingdom. That person, that personal secretary or advisor in the ancient Near East had a very specific title, and that title was servant, the same word that we have here. He was a servant to the king. This reminds you and I that we are servants of God who are created in his image. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. God says, let us create man in our image. While we are servants of God, we are servants with great dignity, with great honor and great glory because we serve as people who have been created in the image of God. And the second thing we often don't notice when we consider servanthood to God is the fact that this is also a worship word. This is a word that is often used to describe the work of the priests and Levites as they served in the temple. Do you consider your vocation to be worship? We have this false divide within the church, the sacred and the secular. We think, I wish that I could be someone important in God's economy, like a preacher or a teacher. The book of Hebrews, the book of Peter tells us you probably really don't because there's extra judgment and extra weight from God that comes when, when the preachers and teachers stand before God and, be, and are asked, did you do faithfully? But beyond that, we think we would rather be preachers and teachers than ditch diggers. Now, if you don't think ditch diggers are important, try driving on a gravel mountain road that has not had the ditches cleaned in quite a while, and it has rained quite a bit. That road disappears over a period of time. But there is a sense in which all of our service to God, whether you're a ditch digger or the president, whether you're a garbage collector or a king, all of your work is an act of worship to God. As we serve God in our roles in this world, we serve in a way that brings him honor and glory and worship. And so we are to remember as we are the servants of God who are praying along with the psalmist through this passage today, that we are called to work in a way that brings honor, glory, and worship to God. We are his servant in this world. And our service to him is an act of worship. And as worshipers who pray to God, we are reminded in today's passage that Bible-soaked prayer gives us comfort in God's promises, hope in waiting on God's action, and joy in God's future glory. So our psalm today opens with a call upon God to remember his word or his promises to his servant. What does the psalmist mean when he says, remember your word to your, to your servant? On November, on November 5th, 1605, a gentleman by the name of Guy Fawkes gathered a bunch of barrels of gunpowder with the intention 
to move them to the basement of the Parliament building in London and to explode them. Had he pulled it off, he would have not only have destroyed the Parliament building and many historians think with the amount of gunpowder that he had, a good chunk of London itself, but he would have eliminated Parliament and the king as well because he was unhappy with the rule that the king had instituted. Several decades later, the poet John Milton, author of Paradise Lost, wrote a poem commemorating um, the failure of Guy Fawkes in his plot. And the poem opens with these lines, Remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Now, why would, he po- why would he pen a poem that remembers a failed treasonous plot? It was because he wanted to keep it in the forefront of the minds of the British citizenry that remember that there are people out there who will seek to do dangerous things and therefore act on behalf of potentially dangerous things that you see happening out there. Milton, as an aside, Milton was also very happy that Fox failed because, anybody know who the king was in 1605? His name was King James. You know what we got from King James? The King James Version of the Bible. And so uh, Milton was very happy that Fox failed because a Bible in English was provided. But the sense of that poem gives us the meaning of remembering. You know, God doesn't forget. God is omniscient in his knowledge. And so the psalmist is not there knocking on the door going, God, don't forget I'm here. I think you've forgotten me and I need you to remember that I'm here. The psalmist is saying, remember that you have made promises and act on those promises. Too often you and I view the action of remembering as a mere recall of lost facts, whether it's looking at a a memory that that your social media posts for you or going through some photos of past events of your life. You you know, we've forgotten these things and it's nice to have them brought back to our memory, but we set them aside and we move on with our lives without doing anything about it. But remembering is a recall of something that has been said in the past with a focus on acting according to what has been said. And so the psalmist says, God, you have made me promises. I need you to act on those promises. Those promises have given me hope, the psalmist says. But I pray, I come to you resting on those promises, hoping that you will act on my behalf. Now, why does he need need God to act? Well, it's because in verse 51, he says, "The, the arrogant mock me without restraint. This is a theme that we have already seen throughout our study of the Psalm 119 so far is that the psalmist is under attack because he is dedicated to God's word. One way that you can really upset people around you is to seek to live a holy life according to God's law. They'll call you hypocrite. They'll they'll call you all kinds of names. They'll call you, oh, you're just a goody-goody two-shoes. You're just holier than thou. You're you're just trying to make us all look bad because you're just trying to be so holy and so good. Sometimes that happens even within the church as those who struggle with their holiness lash out in anger to those who seem to have their life together. 
So the, the, the psalmist is feeling the attacks of the arrogant, of the insolent, of those who are just, uh, who, whom he describes as those who have forsaken God's law in verse 53. And he said, God, I need you to act. But he also crawls upon God to remember his, his promises because he says in the second half of verse 51, because I do not turn from your law. God has promised in his word that he will act on behalf of those who pursue holiness. And so it is good and it is right for you and I to say, Lord, I am afflicted, as we'll look at here in just a moment. I am afflicted and I am pursuing holiness in the power of the Spirit and in the work of Jesus. I am pursuing holiness. Come and rescue me according to your promise. The psalmist does this because God has promised to preserve or to restore his life according to his word. And so the psalmist finds comfort and the strength to pray according to verse 50 in the promises that preserve or restore life. He says there in verse second half of verse 50, your promises preserves my life in the NIV. Other translations say restores my life. And, and both, both catch the sense of what the psalmist wants here. This verb translated preserves or restores is a, a verb that, that basically means fill with life. It's, it's a verb that says, Lord, I am suffering. I am worn out. I am weary from my suffering. And yet your promises enliven or revive me. Where does true revival come from? comes from the words and the promises of God. It is the extraordinary work of God in the ordinary work of the church. It's the church gathering together, praying, singing, proclaiming, giving, reading together to be encouraged, to be enlivened through the work and the word of God. That is where revival comes from. Sometimes God falls upon the church with his Holy Spirit in such a way that, that it happens in extraordinary measures. But life comes to the people of God through the day in, day out work of the church in the word and prayer and in the sacraments. And so the psalmist calls upon God, remember me, your promises give me life. They give me comfort, but I am suffering. I am afflicted and I need you to remember your promises to your people. And so that's where the psalmist begins his prayer with a call upon God to remember but after he calls upon God to remember, he makes a couple of declarations. The first is that I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and find comfort in them in verse 52. The word translated law in verse 52 is different from the word translated law in the other three times it happens in verse 51 and verse 53. And there also in verse 55, those three occurrences are the word Torah which means the instructions or the actual law, the Ten Commandments of God. But this is a word that's related to the civil law of Israel, where God laid out the laws for courtroom interactions, for government interactions in the nation of Israel, and he laid out judgments for those who violate the law of God. And so the psalmist says, I remember your judgments, O Lord, and they are ancient judgments because God is the ancient of days. God has laid them down in, in Israel's history several centuries before this, and they are rooted in who God is. They are rooted in his Torah, in his law. But he says, I remember your judgments, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. 
In fact, he goes on to say in verse 54, I find so much comfort in them that they become the the theme of my song wherever I lodge. Lodge there sends us back to those couple times where he has called himself a stranger, an alien in this world. And as he walks, as he resides in a world that is not his now, but will be his, will belong to the children of God when Jesus returns, he finds comfort and joy in singing the word. Now, what does he mean here by your decrees are the theme of my song? Commentators point out that literally the teachers in Israel would take the law of God, they would set it to music, and they would teach that music, those songs, to children so children could learn the law of God, the decrees of God. There there are groups out there today. There's a group called Sing Scripture. There's a group called The Corner Room, and there's several other groups out there that have taken passages out of whatever translation they're singing. It could be King James, it could be ESV, and they will take them and they will actually set them to music. And you can put the CD or your digital playlist on repeat. You can put your headphones on or leave it playing in the room, and and you can memorize passages of Scripture as you have them sung to you, and eventually you sing them to yourself. It's a great way to meditate on Scripture, by the way. It's a great way to memorize Scripture. I know as as I've gone through this, several of you have come up to me and say, you know, my brain's beyond the point where I can memorize. No, it's not. You just haven't exercised that muscle in a while. So have somebody sing the Scripture to you repeatedly over and over. Pick one song and listen to it over and over until it's internalized, and then choose another song and keep going like that. But it's more than just the actual physical singing of Scripture. What do we, songs, we use songs to lead us, to shape us, do we not? We have national anthems. Oh, say can you see is there to to proclaim and to, to shape us according to the patriotism of being a citizen of the United States of America. We hear the opening chords of, of, of the star-spangled banner and we stand. Sometimes we place our hands over our hearts. Battles, troops were oftentimes led into battles or called out of battles through different songs that would be played by a bugler or some in Scotland that was a piper, but some instrumentalist who would play loudly the orders of the generals by playing music on a loud instrument. Songs shape us. Songs lead us. Songs direct us. And the psalmist is saying here, I want to be led. I want to be shaped. I want to be directed by your word. And so your word, O Lord, is my national anthem. Your word, O Lord, is the battle songs of my life. Your word is what forms me to be one who follows your word more and more. The psalmist is saying, I want to be shaped by your word. But remember, remember, remembering is, doesn't just have a, a thought process to it. It has an action process to it. So what is the action of the psalmist remembering God's judgments from of old? Well, it's either indignation or horror, depending upon your translation. Indignation grips me or horror grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. What does the psalmist mean here? 
indignation or the word translated horror is a, a hot anger. It is a hot rage. We, we think of indignation. We just think of somebody who's a little bit of annoyed. But this is a, this is a violent angry reaction to something that has happened. What has happened? Well, the wicked have forsaken God's law. If you're in conversation or you're watching a movie or a TV show and somebody takes the name of the Lord in vain, how do you react? Do you just let it slide right on by? Or is there a, a gut-wrenching just uh, that, that grips you because the name of the Lord has been taken in vain? Or maybe God's law against adultery has been violated in some way that you're watching on a screen. You just let it slide on by or do you, does it grip you with a hot indignation? Are we, are we so passionate about the law of God that it makes us angry when the wicked, the pagan, violate God's law? Now, we have to be careful how we react to that anger. There is such a thing as a righteous anger, a righteous indignation, but we can react to that righteous indignation in a wrong way. We could go seek to take matters into our own hands by punishing the wicked for their, for their sins. But God says that's God's realm. That's God's area. So we have to be careful how we use that anger. But do you get angry when you see the law of God forsaken and violated in the world? And so there's a, an anger, but there's also a horror mixed in with that anger for two reasons. Number one, the psalmist, if he knows God's judgments, he knows the future of the wicked. And it's not pretty. Those who turn their back on God's laws, those who forsake God's laws, those who forsake God's gospel, have hell to look forward to. And that brings horror to the heart of the psalmist. You see somebody walking quickly on the path toward hell. Someone who has heard the gospel and says, that's not for me, I'll get to heaven my own way. Is there a horror as you look at them and think about their life? That horror should lead you to prayer. That horror should lead you to evangelism, evangelism as you can without destroying the relationship. But there's also a horror because as much as the psalmist professes that he does not turn from God's law, that he finds comfort in God's law, that he obeys his precepts, God's precepts day by day, there's a horror there knowing that he doesn't do it perfectly. Only one man has, and that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so as we consider God's judgments, we need to go to the cross and either thank God that he has provided us salvation through Jesus or embrace that salvation for the first time. Because the horrors of hell can fall upon you if you do not walk in repentance, if you do not walk in faithful reliance upon God and upon God alone for your salvation. So that God has been called upon to remember his promises because they bring comfort, they bring hope, the psalmist says that he will remember God's judgments because they bring him comfort and joy, the joy of song. And then he wraps up by saying, in the night, I remember your name, O Lord. And I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. What does the psalmist mean by the fact that he will remember God's name? 
God's name is more than just the word that we use to refer to him, to identify him. I have a first name, a middle name, and a last name, and I have a nickname. That's not what the psalmist is literally referring to here. I will remember your name. I will remember everything you are, everything you have said, everything you have done on behalf of your people. And this will lead me to keep your law. You and I are called to be holy as God is holy. And that's a difficult thing to do if we try to do it in our own strength. We oftentimes get the cart before the horse, as they say. We think, I'm going to be holy so God will love me. It's not what God says. God says, I have loved you, so be holy. If we get that mixed up, the right way, I have loved you, so be holy, is ultimate success and prosperity in the economy of God. I will be holy so you can love me is hell. And so we have to remember, the psalmist says, in the darkness of my life, I will remember your name. I will remember what you have done. I will remember that you have set me apart. I will remember that you have saved me. I will remember that you have redeemed me. I will remember that you have given me a new, living, holy heart. And in that power, I will keep your law. We mess up badly when we get that backwards. Now, what does he mean by in the night? Have you ever struggled with sleep? And this part of what he means here is he wakes up in the middle of the night and instead of being like I do, where I just sit there and go, you know, as soon as I realize I can't sleep, I go, I am going to sleep, which just makes the thing worse. It moves the frustration of not being able to sleep into anger. But the psalmist says, hey, in those, the darkness of night when I can't sleep, I'll meditate on God's name. I'll think about who you are. I'll think about what you have done. I will... I will let those scripture songs that have soaked into me, that have led me, that have directed me, that have shaped me, I will let them move my mind to focus on God. But, they also, but doing that in the night isn't just merely the, the period of time from sunset to sunrise. It's in any darkness of life, whether it's an emotional darkness or a relational darkness Whatever the darkness is, do you remember the name of God and focus on his law? And then the psalmist wraps this up by saying, this is my practice. This is what I do day in and day out. I obey your precepts. Because of the comfort, because of the hope, because of the joy that he finds in the promises and the decrees and in the judgments of God. The psalmist pursues obedience to God because of what you have done. William Plummer puts it this way. He says, in the darkness of midnight, in the darkness of mental depression, in the darkness of outward providences, God is still, and I would add always, a fitting theme. His name, his nature, his attributes, his word, his works all that pertains to him, all that makes God God are well suited for themes of joyous meditation to the devout. Where do you suffer? Think upon God. Meditate on what God has said. Meditate on what God has done. Sing to yourself the glorious message 
of salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember who God is. Remember what he has done and be moved to comfort, to joy and to hope. We look at all that God has done for us. We look at what the psalmist declares about God. And we see that he has once again declared that he will keep and has kept God's law as a daily practice. Now, as you and I move our way through the rest of this psalm, we've got a, a little ways to go. But as we do this, there should be a fundamental shift in how you and I look at life. In today's passage is in how we look at the suffering life. The psalmist has looked at all the successes and the failures of this world, the wealth, the poverty, the health, the sickness, the better, the worse, and has found his hope in one place and in one place alone. Comfort, hope, and joy are found in God and his word. The Heidelberg Catechism, I've, I've kind of referenced it a couple times, but the Heidelberg Catechism begins with the question, what is my only comfort in life and in death? The Heidelberg Catechism covers much of the same theology that the Westminster Catechism does, but it begins with comfort. What is my only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So whatever good happens to you, whatever suffering comes upon you, you do well, I do well, to focus on the name of God, the triune God who has planned, accomplished, and applied salvation to his people, holds you close. You belong to him, whether things are good, whether things are bad. And in him, you find the comfort, the hope, and the joy to walk wholly before him. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the psalmist call to you to remember your promises. And we also thank you for the fact that as he waits for you to remember and to act, that he finds comfort, hope, and joy in who you are. He can be patient waiting for your timing because he knows that you are good. He can have hope in waiting on your rescue because he knows that you are faithful. So Lord, teach us all of these things. Help us to find comfort, hope, and joy in who you are, in what you have done, and in what you have said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, as we go about our, all our endeavors, whether it's here in the church, in our home, in our work, take this blessing upon you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.